As I said at the beginning, we're beginning to transition. I want us to spend a couple of weeks thinking about um, who we are as a church and, and where we're going and what that looks like. But before we can know where we're going, we need to know where we are. And the first song that Pav played for us this morning, he talked about uh, standing on solid ground. Um, and there are two ways that we can think about that. Number one, and most important, is uh, the solid ground of, of salvation. That if you have believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again by grace alone, you are standing on a solid foundation. But then we, we say, oh, I've become a Christian. And, and then there really is another foundation that needs to be built on. It's not really different. It's still Christ. It's still grace. But somehow in our minds, we, we separate those out. Oh, well, I'm saved by grace, and now I'm going to live... I'm going to live by grace and some other stuff, maybe. And before we can know where we're going, we need to clear up that if you ever hesitate, if you ever say, I'm going to live by grace and or but or anything else that you want to just finish that sentence with, that maybe your foundation isn't as firm as you think. When I was in high school, I was a lifeguard. And one of my duties was to take this little box and get water in it and put paper in it and see what color the paper turned. And, and that told me what needed to go in the pool. More uh, muritic acid, which, by the way, is really fun stuff to torture small creatures with if you're in high school and you like that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> It's really dangerous, though. It can also torture your skin, among other things. Or, uh, if you need to put more chlorine in, um, it's called a litmus test. Uh, and it tells you, simply by what color that turns, what's needed. It tells you where you are. And this morning, we're going to take a, a litmus test. David, in Psalm 51 provides that for us, he tells us or he shows us whether you really indeed live by grace or not. You see, we say that. If I asked you tomorrow, do you need God? Probably you would all say, yes, I need God tomorrow, whatever that is. But is the reality that you really depend upon Him? Not too long ago, my dad's house began to show cracks in the walls. Uh, his chimney seemed to separate a little bit from the rest of the house. It was clear evidence that there was something wrong Underneath, his foundation was not stable. He was not built on solid ground. Most things in Texas are not built on solid ground. It's this ugly black clay that expands and contracts depending upon how much moisture it gets. It changes on a regular basis. 
in the summertime, what's a, a nice, pretty lawn will develop literally cracks that can be that wide. Just large holes in the ground. Looks like, you know, if you've got one of those weird cameras they use in the movies to film miniature stuff, you could like, oh, that's like an earthquake. You could lose a, a foot or a small child in one of them. Um, and that's what people build foundations on in Texas. And so, therefore, if you don't water your foundation, not just your grass, but you actually water your foundation, you keep it moist, then your walls will crack. Your windows and doors won't open or close. Sometimes pipes can literally burst underneath. Windows can break because the house will shift. And David allows us to get a glimpse underneath, to to peer under the house and go, is this stable? Is this firm? Is it a solid foundation that you are living your life on? And the question is, is your foundation grace? Or is there anything else involved in that? He's going to show us two things. Do you understand grace? And do you know grace? who you are. Do you understand grace? And do you know who you are? Some of us go, well, of course I understand grace. Right? I've memorized Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Of course I understand grace. But we're going to see a scenario, and I want you to put yourself in David's shoes this morning. Because if you ever act any differently than how David acts here, it's a sign, it's a symptom that you don't understand grace. Well, yeah, I I know that I'm sinful. Of course, I'm, you know, we're pretty bad off as human beings. We do a a lot of bad stuff. And if, if that's the way you think that we're pretty bad off, then maybe you don't understand who we are. And David's going to paint a picture for us, a very clear picture of who we are because we need to understand that. We can't get where I think this church needs to go if we don't understand who we are and why we gather together. So follow along with me as I read the first six verses from Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we need you this morning. Father, I need you to clearly communicate the wonderful, wonderful truth about grace and about who you are. 
And we need you to hear that truth. And we need your spirit to help us to understand that. To reveal to us where we really don't believe that. And to empower us to accept that and to live our life accordingly. By grace. Trusting in you and you alone. Not only for our salvation, but for making it through each day. And so we ask for your help and your mercy this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, This comes out of the situation when David was caught in sin. You probably are familiar with the story. His army was out in battle and he was home and bored and walking on his roof and he looks down and he sees a a beautiful woman bathing and being king, he gets what he wants, so he sends for her, brings her home, spends the night with her, sends her back home, finds out she's pregnant, says, ooh, I've got a plan for that. Sends for her husband, calls him home from battle. The problem is the husband is loyal to his comrades and refuses to go home. David can't cover up his sin. So he orders that Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, uh, be murdered. You may think, well, kings can do that. What we don't find in, in 2 Samuel 12, what's not in that story, but if you keep reading, we come to find out that this Uriah fellow was one of David's 30 most trusted and most skilled warriors. The Bible calls it his 30 mighty men. Um, Uriah would be like uh, today a Navy SEAL or uh, in the Army a Delta Force. Not only was he good at what he did, but as one of David's 30 mighty men, they had a relationship. They were close. And David, to cover up his sin, has Uriah murdered. And then Nathan, the prophet, shows up and confronts him with his sin. And we read in in 2 Samuel 12, 13, just one short verse that says, And David confessed and sought forgiveness. And Nathan says, And the Lord has forgiven you, has taken away your sin. We just get one little verse and that we don't... How did that happen? What kind of transaction is is that? Because adultery and murder in the Old Testament were punishable by death. How did David get from the adulterer and the murderer to the Lord has taken away your sin? Just one verse. That one verse is like looking out on a field, a beautiful field of flowers. We admire that and go, that's amazing. It's amazing that 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 could happen. But we come to Psalm 51 and it's like we've now zoomed in and we get to look at each individual flower and be amazed at the wonder of God's creation. We don't get what David really prayed in 2 Samuel 12, 13. At some point in time, whatever went through his head in that one verse, David sat down and wrote down. 
And he thought that it was so important that he included it in the nation's hymn book. He wanted everybody to know what went through his mind. He wanted everybody to know what it looks like to approach God guiltily and receive forgiveness. What he ultimately wanted to know, what he wanted the nation to know, and by implication, us to know, what does it mean to live by grace? Because one of the best ways to find out if you really believe in grace is what do you do when you are caught in sin? What are your actions? What are your words? How do you approach God when your sin has been found out? He challenges us to rely completely on God's grace. When you are caught in sin, when your sin has been found out, when the Holy Spirit makes you aware of that, rely on God's grace. He does that by... um, giving us three characteristics of who God is in verse 1. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Uh, That word, be gracious, means bestow favor to me as one who has no claim for that favor. It's not like a favor like, if you'll wash the dishes, I'll help you make your bed. It's not that. It's not... God, I've got something for you. You do something for me. I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. It's, God, I'm coming to you and asking for a favor, and I have no claim for that favor. I have nothing to offer. I have no excuses to make. I have nobody else to rely upon but you. And then he gives us two bases for that favor, and it's based on God's character. He says, According to your loving kindness. That word means your loyal love. It's, well, it's that love that allowed God to fulfill his promise to Abraham by sending Isaac, even though Abraham doubted, even though Abraham lied, even though Abraham tried to manipulate the circumstances. God made a promise to Abraham, and regardless of what Abraham did, God's loyal love saw the birth of Isaac when Abraham was an old man. And David says, God, I need your favor based on the fact that you are one who is faithful. You're loyal. It's not because I'm a great king, God. It's not because I've done anything good. It's based on who you are. And then, according to the greatness of your compassion, the third thing. Uh, That word compassion comes from a word that that means your inner being. Or sometimes it's a word that refers to a mother's womb. God, because that is who you are in your core, deep down inside. God, because you look at your people like a mother would look at her child, I'm appealing to you for mercy. David's not coming to him and saying, God, I need forgiveness, but, you know, it wasn't all my fault. If she hadn't have been bathing there, this wouldn't have happened. If Uriah hadn't have been so stubborn, 
this wouldn't have happened, but I need your forgiveness. He's not coming with excuses. God, remember all the good things that I've done? Remember Goliath? Remember when I didn't kill Saul? Remember all those things? Can we, can, can we balance things out a little bit? God, I, the only reason that I can stand before you is because you grant favors. You display loving kindness. You show mercy. That's who you are. And I want to submit to you that if if God is not like that, if, if that's not true of who God is, then David and us are in trouble. If God doesn't give favors... In other words, if if we have to come and and offer something to get something back, we have nothing to offer when we have offended the God of the universe. There's nothing we can give. There's nothing we can muster up. There's no goodness that we can say, "Can can I trade this? Can I trade this action for how I've offended the creator of the universe? How I have offended the perfect, wonderful, holy God. If God doesn't give favors, then we're in trouble. If God doesn't display loving kindness, then you and I are in trouble. If He's not loyal to His promise, when He said, if you believe, you have eternal life. If God wavers, if God is fickle, If God is not someone who keeps His promises, then what guarantee do we have that He won't change His mind when He gets fed up with us? When we've just done whatever we've done one more time and He says, you know, I've had it. That's enough. If God does not display loving kindness, then you and I are in trouble. And if God is not merciful, that word compassion in in what I read, if at his very core, his very being, he does not look down upon us at the beginning and show compassion to us, then my guess is we never would have existed in the first place. We would have been the human race wiped out long ago. But who he is in his very being, he desires to show mercy to his people. And that's what David appeals to. And you know what? That's the only thing you and I can appeal to. Not, look what I've done. Not, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Not, but it was someone else's fault. Not, if it wasn't for, God, because of who you are, Would you grant me favor? Then David makes three requests coupled with three flaws that he has. Beginning at the end of verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. That word blot out, pretty wide range of meaning. Anything from uh, taking a, a rag and wiping out a dish to annihilate. Uh... But a great word picture is, a long time ago, they would write on wax tablets. 
And if that's all you had was one wax tablet and it was full, well, I don't have another one, you would take a tool and you would scrape off the old words, scrape off a layer of wax. That's a great picture of what this is. We, we have a sentence written against us for our sin. And David says, God, would you, would you scrape it off? Would you get rid of it so that we can start over? So we can write something else? Would you blot out my transgressions? There are a lot of words in Hebrew that stand for things like sin. That's when we get words like transgression, iniquity, sin. Uh, this one is when we break covenant in fellowship with someone. David did that with both Bathsheba and Uriah. He broke a covenant relationship by committing adultery and by murder. And David says, God, would you... Can we, can we blot that out? Can we scrape that off and start over? The second thing, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Um, this is like uh, when you take clothes and you put water to them. You actually wash them. That's what this word was used. Uh, the word iniquity really stands more for the guilt of sin than the actual sin itself. And he says, okay, you've got, I've asked you to, to scrape off the actual sin, but there's still guilt involved. The law says if you commit murder, then you're put to death. There's still guilt. There's still a punishment. Would you wash that away? Would you take water and, and get rid of that for me? Third, he says, and cleanse me from my sin, into verse 2. That word cleanse can also be the same word used when metal is purified, heated up, the impurities rise to the top, you, you get rid of those, scrape those off. Uh, the word sin here is similar to the word in the New Testament, sin. It's, it's falling short of a mark. And David says, can you purify me, that part of me that falls short of the mark? It's like the high jumper. Well, they, get, they get three chances at everything and he takes his one chance and the judge says, that's it, you're disqualified. But don't I get more chances? No. One chance, that's all you get. And you're disqualified. And David says, would you purify that part in me that doesn't measure up? In a sense, he's talking about past, present, and future. God, would you blot out my sins from the past? Would you take that record, David, it's the court case, David, adulterer, murderer, would you remove that from my past? But God, I'm, I'm experiencing present guilt over that. Would you wash that? And God, if something doesn't happen, I'm just going to be in the same mess tomorrow. God, would you purify my inability to measure up? And again, notice what David doesn't do. Uh, oh, and, and God, would you also remember that I have done some good things? God, would you remember that I'm king? Oh, and, and by the way, God, I promise to never walk on the roof again. And we're going to pass a law. No more bathing in public. Right? I'm going to fix things, God. And if I fix things, God, would you, would you do those things for me? David doesn't say that. It's not in there anywhere. God, if you don't do it, 
I'm in trouble. We need to think about how we approach God when we've sinned. Do we come with excuses? Do we come with blaming someone else? I wouldn't have lost my temper if he hadn't pulled out in front of me. Do we come with, well, it's not that bad. I mean, it was just something small. Any sin that offends God offends Him. As we said before, there are different consequences. But when we come to God, do we fall completely on His grace? The litmus test is, the litmus test of do you believe in grace is when you sin and when you come before God to ask forgiveness, what do you add besides if it weren't for the cross of Christ, I'm done for. If at the cross I'm not forgiven, not only for my past sins, but for my future sins, then I have no hope. If you're looking at anything else to get you out of the mess you're in, then you don't understand grace. And it's possible that's because you don't understand who you are. And in verses 3 through 6, David explains to us who we are. Um, Number one, he is aware of what he's done and what his sin looks like. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions. I know that I have, same word, I have broken faith in the community. I'm aware of that. And my sin is ever before me. The fact that I fall short just always in my face. I'm aware of it. I haven't deceived myself into thinking that I'm someone that I'm not, that I'm better than I am. I'm just who I am, and that's someone who doesn't measure up. I've been disqualified. Verse 4, against you, you only, I have sinned. Well, now wait a minute. I think we could make a pretty good case that David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, and very possibly the whole army as he's one of the best fighters they've got. There's a lot of consequences going on here. How can David say, against you and you only I've sinned? I think what he's doing is he realizes that, number one, Uriah and Bathsheba were made in the image of God. And when he offended them, he offended God, their maker. That ultimately, regardless of what he did to someone else, God is the one that gave the commandment. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. God, ultimately, it's your law that I've broken. Ultimately, it's your commands that I have transgressed. He's not denying that he hasn't done something to someone else. He uses the word transgression. I've broken a covenant relationship. But ultimately, God, you're the one that I've offended. And that's important Because he goes on to say, the end of verse 4, So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. God, because I have offended you, you rightfully can render a decision. And David is smart enough to know what that decision should be. It's the death penalty. He's done something deserving of death. He should be on death row right now. 
And he doesn't run away from that. He falls at the real king's feet and says, God, whatever your judgment is, I accept because I'm wrong and you're right. And if we ever come into God's presence wanting to bargain, wanting to get out of some form of punishment, we don't understand grace. He goes on. And he gives us a doctrine that, that we in our modern 21st century mind call total depravity. It's been around for a while, but here it is, black and white. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That word iniquity, again, remember, is being disqualified. Wait. No, that word iniquity is... Uh, guilt. Thank you. Guilt. When I was born, I was guilty. But you haven't done anything yet, David. And he says, when I was born, I was guilty. I was brought forth in iniquity, in guilt. And in sin, my mother conceived me. He's not talking about the act of conception being sinful. He's talking about when I was conceived, I was declared disqualified. When I was conceived, I didn't measure up and was therefore pronounced disqualified at the point of conception. How did that happen? Well, because I got it from my mother and my father and their parents and ultimately we know back to Adam. We all show up with nothing to offer God. No matter how cute and innocent and lovely we were when we came forth, no matter how wonderfully we were dressed or how many oohs and ahs we got in the hospital window, we were disqualified by showing up. We were guilty. We have nothing to offer God. But it gets worse. Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And then the next part's a, it's really hard, and there's a lot of different versions that translate that a lot differently. NASB says, In the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Uh, the New English translation says, You want me to possess wisdom. Regardless, verse 6, what it's saying is, I showed up disqualified, and yet you require integrity. Even though I show up unable to meet any standard, you still have the highest standard. Integrity. Completeness. Wholeness. And God, I don't meet that. And so that's the litmus test for us. Because see, this isn't... While this is a private prayer between God and David, David published it. David wanted us to see, when you've been caught in sin, how do you respond? With excuses? With blame? With uh, diminishing the severity of sin? Bargaining for a lesser sentence? Can we make a plea deal here? I'll say I'm guilty, God, if you'll just give me probation. 
Or do we fall at His feet and say, God, if it's not for Your mercy, if it's not for Your grace, if it's not for Your loving kindness, if it's not for Your compassion, I need that. God, You are right when You judge. Whatever I've done, whatever the penalty is, I accept it. I'm not going to try to weasel out of it. We're not going to try to make a deal. If you do that when you come to God, then you understand grace. If you try any other way to deal with your sin, then I would challenge you that you need to think about what grace is. It is a gift. It is freely offered. And what it requires is belief. As absurd as that is, of like you walking into a bank that you owed, say, $100,000 on a house, and you said, because you're good and kind and loving, would you forgive that debt? That would be foolish, especially in this day and age. They would laugh you out of there. And yet, that's how we have to come before God. And if we don't understand that, that foundation, then we won't be able to minister to this community. You won't be able to minister to your family. You won't be able to love your kids or your spouse. When you answer that question, if you do the book club, what it's like to be married to me, what we want is for our spouse to say, I'm married to someone who understands grace. Because if we understand grace, if we understand that we really have nothing to give, we come to God with an empty hand, on our knees, head bowed. When we understand that, we're better able to give it. And our spouses need that, and our kids need that, and our neighbors need that, and the people that you've yet to meet need that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness, for your mercy and compassion. And as we said earlier, God, we need you because we have nothing to offer other than lots of excuses and lots of finger-pointing and rationalization. But God, we need you. We are wholly dependent upon your grace and your goodness. So God, help us this week as we go through our week, as we find ourselves caught in sin. God, I ask that you would help us to learn what it means that we are forgiven. Help us to come to the foot of the cross and trust you. And then God, help us to know through your Spirit That is, Nathan told David, your sin has been taken away. You will not die. Help us to understand that. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.